Hey everybody, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander. You might notice on this podcast that my voice sounds a little bit off or different. Uh, I'm not sure if it will, but I'm on the tail end of COVID here and today finally feel like my voice is enough at least or, or back enough at least so that I can do a podcast. On January 17th, in the United States at least, we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And Martin Luther King Jr. has always been somebody that I've always really looked up to, as a lot of people do, not exactly because I agree with all of his, let's say, philosophies or theology even, but I don't think, you know, that you and I have to agree on the meaning of life to help each other find meaning in life. And one of the things that I love about Martin Luther King Jr. is that he was human and that he really wrestled with what it meant to be human and what he believed to be true. And because of that, he wrestled a lot with his own calling. You know, it threatened the safety, obviously his safety. It also threatened the safety of his family. And because of that, his calling to use his voice to create this platform for equality actually presented as great ambivalence to him. And he had a lot of agony over learning to accept his call. And so there's something just deeply human about this idea that we can commit ourselves to truth, that we can answer our highest callings to adventure. And also, that doesn't mean that it's all going to go swimmingly or that it's going to work out as something I'll talk about a lot today in in terms of success as we would tend to classify success because Martin Luther King Jr. really never got to see the fruits of any of his actions, you know, his equality, even the laws that were passed for equal voting and things like that happened after he died. And so he never got to see the shore that he was working so hard to row culture over to, so to speak. So what I'm going to do in today's episode is I'm actually going to share a sermon of Martin Luther King Jr. from a book called Strength to Love. A bunch of people that were close to Martin Luther King Jr. had asked him to put a bunch of his popular sermons together in a book. And so that's what this book is. And a lot of people don't realize this, but that is what made Martin Luther King Jr. so popular was his ability to craft an incredible sermon, you know, the I Have a Dream speech that we're all very familiar with was in fact a sermon. And I've had, I've gotten so much out of contemplating his sermons and thinking about them and really trying to think about what it was like for him to go speak this kind of truth to power, you might say, but to do so in a way that quite honestly pissed everybody off, right? Because there were a lot of people that with, that agreed with him, but really wanted to use violence that really didn't agree with his message. Or there were people in his congregation that he would, he would have to call out, that he would say, listen, we're not living according to the ideals that we're professing. And so what I hear and what I feel in the Martin Luther King Jr. story is this struggle to live up to truth and to love. And it I think Martin Luther King Jr. so eloquently describes the not only what that struggle's like, but the reason we need it in the first place. And so for all of those reasons, I love Martin Luther King Jr. Let's turn to this one. It's called Love in Action. And it's based off uh, a scripture reference, Luke 23, 34, which he built his a lot of his sermons off of a single sort of scripture and then extrapolated out on them. The scripture is this, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Few words in the New Testament more clearly and solemnly express the magnanimity of Jesus' spirit than the sublime utterance from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is love at its best. This is one of the things I love about Martin Luther King is he takes something like love, which we all pretend that we know what that is and that we understand it or that we have some semblance of understanding about what it is, and he pulls it apart this way and that way and through extrapolating what it might mean to love, we can come into a deeper understanding of it ourselves. We shall not fully understand the great meaning of Jesus' prayer unless we first notice that the text opens with the word, then. The verse immediately preceding reads thus, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. Then, when he was being plunged into the abyss of nagging agony. Then, when man had stooped to his worst. Then, when he was dying, a most ignominious death. Then, when the wicked hands of the creature had dared to crucify the only begotten Son of the Creator. Then, said Jesus, Father, forgive them. That then might well have been otherwise. He could have said, Father, get even with them. Or, Father, let loose the mighty thunderbolts of righteous wrath and destroy them. Or, Father, open the floodgates of justice and permit the staggering avalanche of retribution to pour upon them. But none of these was his response. Though subjected to inexpressible agony, suffering, excruciating pain, and despised and rejected, nevertheless he cried, Father, forgive them. Let us take note of two basic lessons to be gleaned from this text. Now, Before I want to get into the lesson, I just want to point out that that is a central theme in the Christ myth, okay? You have to understand that about the crucifixion and about the taking up of one's own cross because in that experience, the idea is that God, Christ, had the power of God at his disposal and chose not to use it. This is a theme that pops up in the Christ myth. Actually, I talked about this a little bit, I think, in the last episode where... I say Paul basically talked about Christ saying, he who being of equal stature with God did not consider it something to be used to his advantage. And so what that's doing, if you think about, okay, I have the opportunity to relieve all of my suffering, not just to relieve it, but to satisfy myself and what it is that I want to the nth degree, right? To the, to the most, to the maximum ability possible, I can not only end this present suffering and find comfort, but I can actually get retribution. I could actually get even because I have all of this sort of power. And so reading it in terms of that is helpful for us because there are so many times in our lives where we have to quote unquote pick up our cross. Let's say you're fighting with some sort of habit or compulsion that you're trying to kick. You'll notice that you don't have to kick it. You know, you don't have to suffer the crucifixion of opposites. You don't have to stand there and hold out when every single part of you is like wanting to give in to this because you can probably just go buy whatever it is you need or you can just flip on Pornhub or something like that. It's all very easy, it's all very accessible. And so, oftentimes, when you are in this experience of trying to hold out, trying to Uh, we could say, reach for greater consciousness through whatever kind of obstacles approaching for you, it doesn't feel sensical 
to wait it out when you have the ability to give yourself comfort. Except if you do that over and over and over, you become a shell of who you used to be and you essentially give up the opportunity for greater consciousness at that time. But it's important to remember that you're supposed to read the Christ myth with that in mind because it's actually a really important part of the narrative and of the story. And it's also a place that we can, you know, kind of like draw a little bit of inspiration for ourselves because there's a whole bunch of times where we are taking up our cross, so to speak, and we don't have to, not not by the world standards. And in fact, it might even seem nonsensical too by the world standards, which is all wrapped up in the same idea. So now we'll go on. He says, first, and remember, these are the two basic lessons gleaned from, from this scripture. First, it is a marvelous expression of Jesus' ability to match words with actions. One of the great tragedies of life is that men seldom bridge the gulf between practice and profession, between doing and saying. A persistent schizophrenia leaves so many of us tragically divided against ourselves. On the one hand, we proudly profess certain sublime and noble principles, but on the other hand, we sadly practice the very antithesis of those principles. How often are our lives characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds? We talk eloquently about our commitment to the principles of Christianity, and yet our lives are saturated with the practices of paganism. We proclaim our devotion to democracy, but we sadly practice the very opposite of the democratic creed. We talk passionately about peace, and at the same time, we assiduously prepare for war. We make our fervent pleas for the high road of justice, and then we tread unflinchingly the low road of injustice. This strange dichotomy, this agonizing gulf between the ought and the is, represents the tragic theme of man's earthly pilgrimage. I think we could look at that a little bit. You know, he, t- he says, we talk about the commitment to the principles of Christianity, and yet our lives are saturated with the practice of paganism. What he's saying there, based on that, is like, if you think about Christianity as a unifying, a monotheistic God, a monotheistic religion, and then paganism as a collection of lesser deities than the one, if you're, you know, focused on the many, and you're not focused on the one, you live with a mind divided. And this is what happens is that we worship our money and we worship our comfort and we worship our safety and we worship our partner and we worship all of these other things. So our mind is divided. And what that looks like in practice is that we profess a whole bunch of things and that those things don't exactly come to fruition because we are too divided to see our ideals or to live our ideals out fully. I think that's part of what he's getting at here. But in the life of Jesus, we find that the gulf is bridged. Never in history was there a more sublime example of the consistency of word and deed. During his ministry in the sunny villages of Galilee, Jesus talked passionately about forgiveness. This strange doctrine awakened the questioning mind of Peter. How oft, he asked, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Peter wanted to be legal and statistical, but Jesus responded by affirming that there is no limit to forgiveness. I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. In other words, forgiveness is not a matter of quantity, but of quality. A man cannot forgive up to 490 times without forgiveness becoming a part of the habit structure of his being. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. 
another thing that you're supposed to read into the Christ myth, right, is this idea that Christ is the personification of the Logos, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And that's about Jesus. And the Logos is the discriminating element that carved time and space out of the chaos. And so you're supposed to read Jesus into the beginning. And so his life, he's an avatar of or manifestation of that underlying energy, right? This underlying discriminatory element that we call the logos in Greek, for example. And what you're supposed to read into that is what he's saying right here. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. Basically, Peter's like, listen, I'm by my standards, like how long am I supposed to do this? Because I'm measuring my standards off my comfort, my wealth, whatever it is that the world says would make me successful. And then Christ, the manifestation of the discriminatory element which gives rise to the structure of being, says, no, no, you're mistaken. It's only forgiveness. That's what this place is. It is the the, the very quality of forgiveness. For this reason, I think you, when you read like the prodigal son, for example, you haven't read that story deep enough until you understand that the prodigal son is the entire cosmos. It is the entire universe. And that the very structure of being itself is one of forgiveness. Jesus, as a manifestation of that structure, is saying that. That's what this myth is trying to put forward, I would say, in some sense. Part of what the guru does, like, for example, in Eastern practices or what the parable does in Christian practices is it confuses the perceptual lens. It's to say, like, I know that you think you understand what the answer is here or you think you understand what success is here, but we have to scramble all of that up. And I think we can look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s entire life not as a teacher but as a teaching. And so if you want to look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s life as a teaching, right, you could ask yourself some basic questions about it. You have an idea, for example, of what you think a successful life would be. Now, let's say we have another person. Hold your idea of this is what would make my life successful or a life, quote unquote, successful. And then you look at Martin Luther King. You say, well, here's a person who was so troubled by his own calling, he rarely slept through the night. He, he had such ambivalence about what he was actually doing in the world that often at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., he would wake up and he would fear for the safety of his children and of his family and of himself. And he realized he couldn't sleep, so he would just make coffee and sit at the table and just pray for the strength to continue to love, to continue this thing that he was called toward, that he had great trouble accepting. And then at 39 years old, before any of his work was completed or, or he really saw the fruits of anything, he was shot in the head. Now, would you consider that person's life successful? We can't measure success by the fruits. And so if we look at Martin Luther King's life as a teaching, it shows us that. It shows us that success has to be measured by something deeper than whatever it is that we think of when we think of success. And this, this relinquishing our own definitions of success is part of the letting go that I spoke of in the last episode. And it's part of the deepening in life. We can come into a deeper experience of life when we start to realize that there are other values and virtues by which we can measure our life by in the first place. And Martin Luther King Jr. is really good, in my estimation, especially talking to this evangelical Christian church about how it can't be what we say. It has to be what we do because we're saying one thing and we're serving another thing. 
and to stand up in front of a congregation and tell them that it's got to be really difficult. Jesus also admonished his followers to love their enemies and to pray for them that despitefully used them. This teaching fell upon the ears of many of his hearers like a strange music from a foreign land. Their ears were not attuned to the tonal qualities of such amazing love. They had been taught to love their friends and hate their enemies. Their lives had been conditioned to seek redress in the time-honored tradition of retaliation. Yet Jesus taught them that only through a creative love for their enemies could they be children of their Father in heaven, and also that love and forgiveness were absolute necessities for spiritual maturity. The moment of testing emerges. Christ, the innocent Son of God, is stretched in painful agony on an uplifted cross. What place is there for love and forgiveness now? How will Jesus react? What will he say? The answer to these questions bursts forth in majestic splendor. Jesus lifts his thorn-crowned head and cries in words of cosmic proportions, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This was Jesus' finest hour. This was his heavenly response to his earthly rendezvous with destiny. I don't have a lot to say about that other than I just want to point out like the incredible sort of poetics of the way that Martin Luther King Jr. would talk. You know, this idea that this is his heavenly response to his earthly rendezvous with destiny. You can feel the contrasting of values coming together here. We sense the greatness of this prayer by contrasting it with nature, which, caught in the finality of her own impersonal structure, does not forgive. In spite of the agonizing pleas of men trapped in the path of an onrushing hurricane or the anguished cry of the builder falling from the scaffold, nature expresses only a cold, serene, and passionless indifference. She must honor everlastingly her fixed, immutable laws. When these laws are violated, she has no alternative except to follow her path of uniformity. Nature does not and cannot forgive. Or, contrast Jesus' prayer with the slowness of man to forgive. We live according to the philosophy that life is a matter of getting even and of saving face. We bow before the altar of revenge. Samson, eyeless at Gaza, prays fervently for his enemies, but only for their utter destruction. The potential beauty of human life is constantly made ugly by man's ever-recurring song of retaliation. I was just working with uh, Polly Young Eisendroth in a quote of hers in a lecture that she gave about this idea that we have to, as society at some point, our consciousness will have to progress beyond making babies and making war. Because those two things, as they are the sort of culmination of life, if that's our highest ideal, as Martin Luther King Jr. is saying, then our consciousness is stuck. It cannot expand. And the problem with that is as technology increases, like you know, Weinstein says, we've got the technology and the power of gods without the wisdom, then what's going to happen is we're going to hit the delete button on our species. Because the wisdom and the power to wield that wisdom have to kind of come up side by side. And I think this is kind of one of the things that, that Martin Luther King Jr. is pointing to here. And I don't know if he would take an evolutionary approach like I would, but to say that you can see the sort of animalistic 
intentions coming forth. And also there's something in man that has the ability to reach for something higher that can in some sense betray what seems like the logic of the moment that you're in or the logic of the present time that you're in. Like maybe there's something bigger that we can serve and it seems to be that that, to me at least, that seems like the divine impulse, the the ability for us to mimic something higher than nature allows us to transcend it. That's a pretty loaded thing to say, and I'm not going to get into it right now because I don't want to get too far from Martin Luther King Jr., but it's just something worth considering that we have this sort of thing that seems nonsensical, but that we can reach for. And I think what that thing is, is love. Jumping back in here. Or contrast the prayer with a society that is even less prone to forgive. Society must have its standards, norms, and mores. It must have its legal checks and judicial restraints. Those who fall below the standard and those who disobey the laws are often left in a dark abyss of condemnation and have no hope for a second chance. Ask an innocent young lady who, after a moment of overriding passion, becomes the mother of an illegitimate child. She will tell you that society is slow to forgive. Ask a public official who, in a moment's carelessness, betrays the public trust. He will tell you that society is slow to forgive. Go to any prison and ask the inhabitants who have written shameful lines across the pages of their lives. From behind the bars, they will tell you that society is slow to forgive. Make your way to death row and speak with the tragic victims of criminality. As they prepare to make their pathetic walk to the electric chair, their hopeless cry is that society will not forgive. Capital punishment is society's final assertion that it will not forgive. Such is the persistent story of a mortal life. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of revenge. Men has never risen above the injunction of the lex talionis, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In spite of the fact that the law of revenge solves no social problems, men continue to follow its disastrous leading. History is cluttered with a wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path. Jesus eloquently affirmed from the cross a higher law. He knew that the old eye-for-an-eye philosophy would leave everyone blind. He did not seek to overcome evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. Although crucified by hate, he responded with aggressive love. What a magnificent lesson. Generations will rise and fall. Men will continue to worship the God of revenge and bow before the altar of retaliation. But ever and again, this noble lesson of Calvary will be a nagging reminder that only goodness can drive out evil and only love can conquer hate. What I love about this passage is he like reaches into society and he finds all of these people. The the person who has an illegitimate illegitimate child who for a very long time in society that was a huge problem or the criminal. And he he says, "Look at how slow we are to forgive all of these people. How we think we have to serve this righteousness and this desire, this God of retaliation and revenge." He's like, "Look at this, and notice how it doesn't actually solve any of the, of the problems. See, the social problems are continuing. It's not like they're going away. It's not like incarceration rates are going down. 
the problem is begetting the problem. It's like uh, it's like this sort of self-repeating cycle that won't will never be freed of until someone steps outside of the cycle and worships something higher than the God that's making the cycle possible. That God is retaliation. What would it look like though? if we serve something like love. And then all of those people that he's talking about, maybe they get a seat at the table too. This is this is heresy. I totally understand this. To our Western sensibilities and our and the, the way in which we hope to maintain society, it's like, no, we have to. We have to excommunicate. We have to vanquish what we don't like and what presents as a threat to our way of life. But maybe it has information for us. And maybe it presents as a threat because of the posture that we take toward it. You know, it's kind of like when you're working with a dream or a nightmare. I worked with a recurring nightmare in psychoanalysis for a while now. And what's very interesting, something I notice, and you notice the same thing too if you start to do it because it's not a phenomena that's like local to me. Um, it's something you'll notice a lot in psychoanalysis is that if you turn toward something, it starts to transform. So I had this reoccurring nightmare, and maybe I'll, I wrote a paper on it, so maybe I'll read it sometime. But the idea, the point was that I was a victim to this nightmare and I forever, and I just, my best hope was that I didn't actually have the nightmare, right? That, that it would just leave at some point. And, you know, you can see there are some people that, because their nightmares feel so victimizing, they actually have fear of going to sleep because they don't want to go back into them. And what's really fascinating is I noticed is once I turned toward it and I started asking it questions, like, what is this here to teach me? What If I were to analyze this, what might it have to say? And as I did that, it started to transform. And now it's gone through like four different evolutions and and it's become somewhat of like a psychopomp, like a guide. It was a demon and now it's more like a a daemon, right? Now it's more like a soul guide. And that happened because I turned toward it. It had a message and I didn't realize that what was happening is that it was actually a reflection of the disposition and aggression that I was taking toward it. That's something we find often with our struggles, with our enemies, is that we're creating the conditions that make the division possible. And that if we would just change our way of being, it would change the way that this thing is actually interacting with us. One way you could say it is if you change what's within you, it will start to change what's around you. And as Martin Luther King Jr. says here, only goodness can drive out evil and only love can conquer hate. That's worth contemplating because I don't think many people actually believe that. That's worth really trying to understand why is that true and how does that work. That will open up all kinds of space for you to access the depth in Martin Luther King Jr.'s message. Now he goes on to the second lesson that comes from this scripture. A second lesson comes to us from Jesus' prayer on the cross. It is an expression of Jesus' awareness of man's intellectual and spiritual blindness. They know not what they do, said Jesus. Blindness was their trouble. Enlightenment was their need. We must recognize that Jesus was nailed to the cross, not simply by sin, but also by blindness. The men who cried, crucify him, were not bad men, but rather blind men. The jeering mob that lined the roadside that led to Calvary was composed not of evil people, but of blind people. They knew not what they did. What a tragedy. One of the ways that we can invite 
those people to the table, whoever the other is for you, right? Whatever it is you can't stand about other people. One of the ways that we can invite them to the table and start to create a dialogue is by realizing that one, they're not bad, they're blind, and two, so are we. Perhaps not in the way that they're blind, but we're still finite creatures. And so if you think about our attention like a spotlight, right? And this sometimes shows up in psychological literature, our attention shines a spotlight on something, but everything else in the world we're actually unconscious of. And so we have incredible blind spots, even if we're not aware of them. Well, we're definitely not aware of them, and that's why they're blind spots. Through the recognition of mutual blindness, we can have a conversation about what it might mean to see. History reverberates with testimonies of this shameful tragedy. Centuries ago, a sage named Socrates was forced to drink hemlock. The men who called for his death were not bad men with demonic blood running through their veins. On the contrary, they were sincere and respectable citizens of Greece. They genuinely thought that Socrates was an atheist because his idea of God had a philosophical depth that probed beyond traditional concepts. Not badness, but blindness killed Socrates. Saul was not an evil-intentioned man when he persecuted Christians. He was a sincere, conscientious devotee of Israel's faith. He thought he was right. He persecuted Christians not because he was devoid of integrity, but because he was devoid of enlightenment. The Christians who engaged in infamous persecutions and shameful inquisitions were not evil men, but misguided men. The churchmen who felt they had an edict from God to withstand the progress of science whether in the form of a Copernican revolution or a Darwinian theory of natural selection, were not mischievous men, but misinformed men. And so Christ's words from the cross are written in sharp-etched terms across some of the most inexpressible tragedies of history. They know not what they do. Okay, there's some things I want to pull out here. One, I think we should look at Socrates' life again as teaching, if you look at his life as a teaching, one of the things you'll start to see is the Socratic method he developed because he was told he was the wisest man in Athens, and he knew that that wasn't true. He felt like, no, I'm so aware. You know, he spent so much time like trying to understand his own ignorance that he was like, that can't possibly be true because I don't know anything at all. And so he developed the Socratic method, which is a way of talking and interacting and engaging with people so that you can restate what they think to see if it's actually what they mean and believe and then to see further if they actually believe that thing to be true when measured against reality. And so it's a circular sort of dialogue where you go back and forth restating what they said. And it was so frustrating to people because it pointed out their own blindness. And so what happened is they had Socrates killed. But they actually gave him an opportunity right before at his like, you know, arraignment, you might say, where he basically is given an opportunity. Listen, if you just stop doing this and just leave town, then we're not going to kill you. Like nobody here actually wanted to kill you, but we do want to, in a sense, prize or preserve our own self-deception. We're sick of you pointing this out to us. Right? We have a tradition here. We have a way that things have been done, and we're not interested in the heresy that you're bringing forward. And he said, not only am I not going to stop doing it, but actually it takes a lot of effort for me to focus on philosophy and to question myself constantly. And so not only should you allow me to continue to do it, but you should those with the means should actually pay for me to do it and pay for my life because it's such a service that I'm doing. That, of course, got Socrates killed. 
And so if we look at his life as a teaching, you could look at it similar to the path of Christ is I'm pointing out a higher ethic, a higher ideal, a higher truth. And rather than accept that higher ideal, it's better if I vanquish you and kill you. And as in, let me destroy the people that point out my blind spots as if they are wrong rather than as if I am blind. And I think that tells you that all that you actually need to know about humans because we do this over and over in every age whenever a new truth emerges. And so we can ask ourselves the question of like, well, what if I'm wrong? What would that mean? Now, when you ask yourself that question, you obviously don't think you're wrong because you think what you think. That's not the way to go about asking the question. The question is to assume that you are wrong and then ask yourself what that would mean if that were true. And that starts to open up new understanding. This tragic blindness expresses itself in many ominous ways in our own day. Some men still feel that war is the answer to the problems of the world. They are not evil. On the contrary, they're good, respectable citizens whose ideas are robed in the garments of patriotism. They talk of brinkmanship and a balance of terror. They sincerely feel that a continuation of the arms race will be conducive to more beneficent than maleficent consequences. So they passionately call for bigger bombs, larger nuclear stockpiles, and faster ballistic missiles. Wisdom born of experience should tell us that war is obsolete. There may have been a time when war served as a negative good by preventing the spread and growth of an evil force, but the destructive power of modern weapons eliminates even the possibility that war may serve as a negative good. If we assume that life is worth living and that man has a right to survive, then we must find an alternative to war. In a day when vehicles hurtle through outer space and guided ballistic missiles carve highways of death through the stratosphere, no nation can claim victory in war. A so-called limited war will leave little more than a calamitous legacy of human suffering, political turmoil, and spiritual disillusionment. A world war, God forbid, will leave only smoldering ashes as a mute testimony of a human race whose folly led inexorably to untimely death. Yet there are those who sincerely feel that disarmament is an evil and that international negotiation is an abominable waste of time. Our world is threatened by the grim prospect of atomic annihilation because there are still too many who know not what they do. Notice, too, how the truth of this text is revealed in race relations. Slavery in America was perpetuated not merely by human badness, but also by human blindness. True, the causal basis for the system of slavery must, to a large extent, be traced back to the economic factor. Men convince themselves that a system that was so economically profitable must be morally justifiable. They formulated elaborate theories of racial superiority. Their rationalizations clothed obvious wrongs in the beautiful garments of righteousness. This tragic attempt to give moral sanction to an economically profitable system gave birth to the doctrine of white supremacy. Religion and the Bible were cited to crystallize the status quo. Science was commandeered to prove the biological inferiority of the Negro. Even philosophical logic was manipulated to give intellectual credence to the system of slavery. Someone formulated the argument of the inferiority of the Negro according to the framework of an Aristotelian logic. All men are made in the image of God. God, as everyone knows, is not a Negro. Therefore, the Negro is not a man. 
So men conveniently twisted the insights of religion, science, and philosophy to give sanction to the doctrine of white supremacy. Soon this idea was embedded in every textbook and preached in practically every pulpit. It became a structured part of the culture, and men then embraced this philosophy not as the rationalization of a lie, but as the expression of a final truth. They sincerely came to believe that the Negro was inferior by nature and that slavery was ordained by God. In 1857, the system of slavery was given its greatest legal support by the deliberations of the Supreme Court of the United States in the Dred Scott decision. The court affirmed that the Negro had no rights and that the white man was bound to respect. The justices who rendered this decision were not wicked men, but they were victims of spiritual and intellectual blindness. They knew not what they did. The whole system of slavery was largely perpetuated by sincere, though spiritually ignorant, persons. This tragic blindness is also found in racial segregation, the not-too-distant cousin of slavery. Some of the most vigorous defenders of segregation are sincere in their beliefs and earnest in their motives. Although some men are segregationists merely for reason of political expediency and economic gain, not all of the resistance to integration is the rear guard of professional bigots. Some people feel that their attempt to preserve segregation is best for themselves, their children, and their nation. Many are good church people, anchored in the religious faith of their mothers and fathers. Pressed for a religious vindication for their conviction, they will even argue that God was the first segregationist. Red birds and bluebirds don't fly together, they contend. Their views about segregation, they insist, can be rationally explained and morally justified. Pressed for a justification of their belief in the inferiority of the Negro, they turn to some pseudo-scientific writing and argue that the Negro's brain is smaller than the white man's brain. They do not know, or they refuse to know, that the idea of an inferior or superior race has been refuted by the best evidence of the science of anthropology. Great anthropologists like Ruth Benedict, Margaret Mead, and Melville Herskovitz agree that although there may be inferior and superior individuals within all races, there is no superior or inferior race. And segregationists refuse to acknowledge that science has demonstrated that there are four types of blood and that these four types are found within every racial group. They blindly believe in the internal validity of an evil called segregation and the timeless truth of a myth called white supremacy. What a tragedy. Millions of black people have been crucified by conscientious blindness. With Jesus on the cross, we must look lovingly at our oppressors and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think this is, I mean, personally, this is why Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. He looked into a world who was convinced that the division that they saw, they actually needed. And this is what happens. Remember in the last episode, I talked about what happens in like the Scrooge archetype, for example, where logic is not in service to love, but like in service to itself. What happens? Well, that's why he just invoked Aristotle in that. He's like, listen, you can use logic to justify what it is that you think, but until that logic is in service to something higher, you're going to remain blind. Here we move into the final section of the sermon. From all that I have attempted to say, it should now be apparent that sincerity and conscientiousness in themselves are not enough. History has proven that these noble virtues may degenerate into tragic vices. Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Shakespeare wrote, 
For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. As the chief moral guardian of the community, the church must implore men to be good and well-intentioned and must extol the virtues of kind-heartedness and conscientiousness. But somewhere along the way, the church must remind men that devoid of intelligence, goodness, and conscientiousness will become brutal forces leading to shameful crucifixions. Never must the church tire of reminding men that they have a moral responsibility to be intelligent. This idea that these virtues of our world, conscientiousness, logic, all of this, must be in service to something higher, which he calls love, which he calls kind-heartedness, these things, is really exemplified in Hitler, right? Because Hitler was an extremely conscientious person, so he was able to get a lot done in service to evil. This is what's really important to remember. It's like he, this conscientiousness that we often extol as this incredible, I don't know, power, let's say, in the West. If you're conscientious, if you're hardworking, if you're driven enough, you can do anything. And it's like, yeah, that might be true, but what you do might create an incredible amount of harm and suffering again if it's not in service to something higher. Must we not admit that the church has often overlooked this moral demand for enlightenment? At times, it is talked as though ignorance were a virtue and intelligence a crime. Through its obscurantism, closed-mindedness, and obstinacy to new truths, the church has often unconsciously encouraged its worshipers to look down upon intelligence. But if we are to call ourselves Christians, we had better avoid intellectual and moral blindness. Throughout the New Testament, we are reminded of the need for enlightenment. We are commanded to love God, not only with our hearts and souls, but also with our minds. When the, when the Apostle Paul noticed the blindness of many of his opponents, he said, I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Over and again, the Bible reminds us of the danger of zeal without knowledge and sincerity without intelligence. And you can just see like how he would make so many people mad because he's speaking truth as he understands it as it's coming through to him. And unfortunately for him, that means, listen, we have to also call out where we're blind. So you can imagine now there's like people on both sides that have a real problem with the way in which Martin Luther King Jr. is speaking out. So we have a mandate both to conquer sin and also to conquer ignorance. Modern man is presently having a rendezvous with chaos not merely because of human badness, but also because of human stupidity. If Western civilization continues to degenerate until it, like 24 of its predecessors, falls hopelessly into a bottomless void, the cause will be not only its undeniable sinfulness, but also its appalling blindness. And if American democracy gradually disintegrates, it will be due as much to a lack of insight as to a lack of commitment to right. If modern man continues to flirt unhesitatingly with war and eventually transforms his early habitat into an inferno, such as even the mind of Dante could not imagine, it will have resulted from the downright badness and also from downright stupidity. They know not what they do, said Jesus. Blindness was their besetting trouble. And the crux of the matter lies here. We do need to be blind. Unlike physical blindness that is usually inflicted upon individuals as a result of natural forces beyond their control, intellectual and moral blindness is a dilemma that man inflicts upon himself by his tragic misuse of freedom and his failure to use his mind to its fullest capacity. One day, 
we will learn that the heart can never be totally right if the head is totally wrong. Only through the bringing together of head and heart, intelligence and goodness, shall man rise to a fulfillment of his true nature. I love that line, and I would just say that that's exactly what I mean by logos and service to eros. Neither is this to say that one must be a philosopher or a professor of extensive academic training before he can achieve the good life. I know many people of limited formal training who have amazing intelligence and foresight. The call for intelligence is a call for open-mindedness, sound judgment, and love for truth. It is a call for men to rise above the stagnation of close-mindedness and the paralysis of gullibility. One does not need to be a profound scholar to be open-minded, nor a keen academic to engage in an assiduous pursuit for truth. Light has come into the world. A voice crying through the vista of time calls men to walk in the light. Man's earthly life will become a tragic cosmic elegy if he fails to heed his call. This is the condemnation, says John, that light is come into the world in men who love darkness rather than light. This is the condemnation, says John, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Jesus was right about those men who crucified him. They knew not what they did. They were inflicted with a terrible blindness. Every time I look at the cross, I am reminded of the greatness of God and the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. I am reminded of the beauty of sacrificial love and the majesty of unswerving devotion to truth. It would be wonderful were I to look at the cross and sense only such a sublime reaction. But somehow I can never turn my eyes from that cross without also realizing that it symbolizes a strange mixture of greatness and smallness, of good and evil. As I behold that uplifted cross, I'm reminded not only of the unlimited power of God, but also of the sordid weakness of man. I think not only of the radiance of the divine, but also of the tang of the human. I am reminded not only of Christ at his best, but of man at his worst. And this is part of the symbolism I've been hoping to elicit about the cross as the meeting point of these two things. We must see the cross as the magnificent symbol of love conquering hate and of light overcoming darkness. But in the midst of this glowing affirmation, let us never forget that our Lord and Master was nailed to that cross because of human blindness. Those who crucified him knew not what they did. Wake up now. Wake up now.
any more time This moment is a mountain to move So move it inside And wake up Comparison, always pretending I. 